should talk about the meetings and I have lots of things I've been sharing with my students, but that's not what we're doing today. It's not? It's not. Today we are talking about what you are doing right now, which is sitting on your bootay being sedentary. Wrapped in a blanket. <laughs> Wrapped in a blanket. I'm as much sedentary as somebody can get at the moment. How would we possibly measure your energy expenditure with the complications of you sitting, but then also warming yourself? And wiggling, as I do. But yeah, so sedentary behavior is a big thing, and it turns out there are a whole bunch of ways to assess sedentary behavior. Yeah, and, and little did I know, there is a sedentary behavior network. Um, this is a toolkit piece. It's called Objective and Subjective Measurement of Sedentary Behavior in Adult Humans, a toolkit. So it's part of the AJHB toolkit series. And I just want to make a note. I, I know we've interviewed people about this before, I think. But I didn't appreciate the importance of this toolkit series for our listeners, right? Like one of the things that did come out of the meetings and talking to our editor, Bill Leonard, is that when you write a piece and publish it and you've done any innovation in your methods, consider AJHB for a toolkit piece, writing up your methods in a more detailed way, especially if your methodology is generalizable to other research topics so that other people can use it and have the details needed. Much of what we do here on Sausage of Science is actually trying to go in the weeds of some of these methods. So what we're doing today is very meta. We're going into the weeds of the weeds. And the, the authors of today's piece are Dr. Janelle Wagnild. She is a teaching fellow in the Anthropology of Health and a postdoctoral research associate in quantitative methods. Uh, she actually got her PhD in uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, right before the pandemic in 2019 for a thesis entitled Sedentary Time During Pregnancy and Gestational Diabetes Risk, a Mixed Method Approach Among Women in the UK. The main objective of her project was to test associations between objectively measured sedentary time during pregnancy, as well as two specific sedentary behaviors, television time, right? What else are we doing when we're sitting around? Knitting? What about knitting time? I'm going to ask her that. What about and occupational, podcasting time? What about podcasting time? I know. What about tattooing time? Just sitting. I mean, that's, I'm sorry. That's, that's a little a, bit more active. I mean, they're, it's they're not sitting around. Well, it's, it's, it's a, it's, I, I should not have digressed. Let me come back to the subject at hand, not myself. So they're looking at two specific sedentary behaviors, as I said, and then with relation to gestational diabetes, glucose levels, and other pregnancy related outlets. And not just are pregnant women sedentary, but is, uh, is sedentism during pregnancy linked to uh, negative health outcomes? Mm -hmm. The study also, also used. Huh? You got to say, you say diabetes, not diabetes. I say both. Um, <laughs> the study also used semi structured interviews to explore the social context. I say social, really, wow. uh, of sedentary time during pregnancy. Who yeah, else are we talking to? Yeah, she's just one of the authors. We also have Dr. Justin Onger. Uh, which I also hope I pronounced correctly, uh, who is a researcher in the field of human behavior, uh, adept at developing and delivering behavior change, change interventions in healthcare context, and for managing projects from inception through delivery and evaluation. Uh, his interests include technology, exercise, and health. And uh, he works on assimilating knowledge quickly, consistently delivering work to a high standard. This is actually a wonderfully written bio that I totally stole from his site uh, and producing creative and impactful solutions to difficult problems. Um, he does a lot of work on clinical trials and behavioral change with vulnerable populations, as well as conducting systemat or, yeah, systematic and realist 
reviews, and qualitative methods. He's currently a research fellow working on an NIHR-funded project, conducting a realist review to understand how interventions to reduce unprofessional behaviors in acute care settings work, why, and whom they benefit. What's a realist review? I'm not sure. We can ask. And um, I'm guessing that this wider international team and the many people, that may be the sedentary behavior research Ooh, network. Yeah, that network. What do you think? I should have tested when I came home. I just was so... Uh... It doesn't seem worth it. I'm Chris. Uh, we, we can go by first names, but we want to make sure we pronounce your last names correctly. Um, we already asked Justin, so it's Onger, right? Mm -hmm. And how would you like to your, your name pronounced? Uh, Janelle Wagnold. Wagnold. Okay. But and, I've and, heard everything. So. Okay. And and we, we need to get better at this too, because we, we're off and on. I go by he, him. I don't know uh, if you if you guys want to share your pronouns. Uh, so we make sure we're, we're correct. That would be appreciated. Yep. Mine are she, her. I'm he, him as well. It cares she, her too. And I I'm she, her. Sorry, as I fumble to unmute myself. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you both so much for taking the time. I know especially having to do this transatlantic interview, the time differences are not always the best. So we really do appreciate you taking the time to join us today to talk about your new toolkit article, which we introduced before y'all came on. Congrats for that, by the way. Uh, but uh, one of the things we always like to start the podcast with is getting to know each of you a little bit. So how you became an anthropologist and why you decided to actually pursue it as a career. Uh, so kind of tell us about your origin story. Uh, let's start with Janelle and then we'll do Justin next. Sure. Um, so I didn't know what anthropology was <laughs> for a long time. Um, when I started in undergrad, I knew I was really interested in, in health and um, human health uh, specifically and didn't really know that there was anything besides medicine that you could do um, with an interest in health. So I started undergrad as a bio major, you know, kind of pre-med. Um, and then my sophomore year, I took anatomy and physiology from a biological anthropologist. Um, that was Kara Walshuffler. And um, she would kind of bring in the evolutionary perspective of our bodies and why they are the way that they are and why they work the way that they, they do or, or don't, as the case may be. Um, that just opened up a whole world for me in terms of what anthropology can do and, and the perspective it can bring to health and well-being. So um, I finished my degree in biology and then um, found out that Durham University in the UK, where I still am based, had a master's in evolutionary medicine, which just seemed perfect um, given my interests and, and journey at the time. So I did that, um, got funding for my PhD, and so stayed on for that. So that's what brought me into anthropology and to where I am now. Um, I'm currently a postdoc in quantitative methods in the anthropology department at Durham, um, and I've, I've kind of veered away a bit from anthropology and, and even the kind of physical activity, sedentary time stuff my PhD was about, um, getting more into statistics and things, but um, very much still interested in what's going on in the world of, of anthropology. So, that's so our, our webmaster junior service fellow, um, Andrea Silva Caballero was at Durham. Are you, uh, you guys familiar with each other? Supervised by Helen Ball, who was my second uh, nice. PhD supervisor. Awesome. And Justin, what about you? Um, so I, I've never really strictly worked in anthropology, um, but I, I think I came at this from a bit of a sort of behavior change psychology angle. So um, I've always been very interested in health. I'm a big exerciser. So I think during university, I got big into um, powerlifting and running and those kinds of activities. Um, so I really wanted to 
perhaps pursue a exercise science angle, but with a bit of a twist. Um, so I brought the behavior change in there because I was doing a bit of a interdisciplinary um, degree in the Netherlands at the time. Um, and so I applied to this PhD at the University of Birmingham, which was in an innovative training network across Europe, focused on the problem of healthy aging, um, looking at sedentary behavior in older adults and how that might impact on people's health. Um, and that was in the sort of School of Sport and Exercise Science at the University of Birmingham. So I think um, while Janelle was working at the anthropology department and I was working at the School of Sport and Exercise Science, we both actually sort of had that common thread of sedentary behavior, which brought us together for this paper. Um, and so I think that I sort of very much came at it from a personal interest angle um, and also sort of a passion for helping people to try and be a bit more healthy um, through behavior change techniques. So I'm a former powerlifter myself, and that is not a common thing that we hear when we interview people that powerlifting is your sport. So yay, that makes me <laughs> extremely happy to hear. Uh, yay. There's dozens of us. Dozens, dozens. I like that. Just dozens of us. <laughs> Take over the world. Uh, so you all have this new toolkit article out. Uh, and kind of what inspired you to to write this paper? What what made you say like, right, we need to kind of put together this review of different ways of, of measuring sedentary behavior and then kind of lay out the pros, cons and, and actual financial costs of each. What what inspired this? Well, I think it's going to be hard to decide who talks first in these situations. But um, yeah, I was invited to the University of Durham or Durham University um, by a mutual colleague that we have. Jillian Bentley is also on the, the panel or an editor at AGHB, I believe. Um, and so Janelle and I met um, at Durham University for the first time, actually. And um, I think she sort of put us together, the uh, editor, because she knew we were both working on sensory behavior, but from very different backgrounds. And I think it was uh, suggested to us that it would be great if uh, AGHB could have a, a, a toolkit paper about central behavior as a bit of an up-and-coming topic i mean a lot of people are saying you know sitting is the new smoking there's all sort of taglines out there um about sort of under-researched area that might actually you know be a big portion of most people's lives and so i think that a lot of helpful nudging and um yeah mutual interest brought us together and um i think also sort of a you know looking at out at the sea of literature that's out there, sort of having a guide for um, helping people do this kind of research in perhaps populations that have not frequently been um, considered in these types of research. So, yeah, I don't know if there's anything to add there, Janelle. Um, I don't think so. I mean, the, the timing was good, so having both just finished PhDs um, at the time that we started the paper and having to think through all the methods that were being used, that kind of review was, was fresh in our minds. So it was nice to have a, a place to summarize that and hopefully help other people, you know, mm -hmm. get get through that quicker, get at everything on their own. Yeah. And yeah, I'm, I'm also just really big on research methods. I'm a fellow of the Durham Research Methods Center. So this methods are my thing. So <laughs> it was a, a great opportunity to do this. Well, we, we love that. As, as Karen and I were saying earlier, the, uh, the goal of this podcast is to understand how the sausage of the science is made. And so it's very meta that you guys are doing a piece on the methods and now we're asking you to go even deeper on your discussion of the methods, right? So 
we are obviously there as well. And of course, it's really ironic that we have all these sort of moving parts around essentially sedentary behaviors. Basically, what I'm I'm interested in in hearing more about is is what what you're discussing, right? So you, you we have devices we can use, uh, and I'll say the tape on that picture just makes me. I'm waiting for my skin to rip right off when they take that sensor off. So, you know the picture, Kara? The picture of the sensor yeah. on the thigh? I have hairy thighs, so... The... I had to rip that off of uh, some old men. Yeah, yeah. so... And they well, didn't like it. Let's talk about... <laughs> so, so tell us about the, 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 the methods that you discuss, right? And, and some of the pros and cons of the subjective direct observation, say, and, and the devices. So, I mean, overall, I think... The discussion is kind of framed around what it is that you're actually interested in measuring, right? So from my perspective, doing my PhD was measure sedentary time, which is the total time spent sitting or lying down while awake. And it doesn't matter if that's happening at work. It doesn't matter if that's happening driving to work or, or whatever. Um, and so from that perspective, devices are usually the, the best for quantifying that. A lot of things that we do while sitting are really difficult to recall. It's not like going for a run where it's a very distinctive thing that you remember doing, you know, how far you went, you know, how long it took, you sort of sit here and you sit there and, and usually doing something else. So it's really hard to um, measure things in that way. Um, subjective measurements, um, the, the type of device and how and where it's worn is really important um, because for a long time, accelerometers that were used to measure physical activity would be worn on the waist, for example. And that's great if you're walking, moving, you know, whatever, it captures that kind of movement. Um, but it does not distinguish sitting from standing very well. And that's a really important distinction in um, the measurement of, of sedentary time. So that's kind of that aspect. But what those measurements don't give you is what people are doing, right? So you just have information about time spent sitting, but sitting doing what? And it turns out that there's a lot of different effects of different kinds of sedentary behaviors. So for example, um, in my PhD, looked at time spent watching television per day. This was self-reported. Um, this is among women who are pregnant and looking at the link between that and gestational diabetes development. And time spent watching TV had a strong relationship with gestational diabetes development, but total sedentary time as measured by um, a thiawarn accelerometer had no association. So these constructs are very different. Um, and capture potentially really different kind of biological um, pathways. So yeah, again, it just depends on what the question is and what you're interested in, in measuring. So let me give just like paint a scenario because I know that was a, an abstract sort of question several years ago, and this may have been what um, got Jillian thinking about y'all. There was a plenary, I think it was Max Gluckman did a, did a plenary talk or the Pearl Lecture at the Human Biology Association on non-exercise activity thermogenesis or NEAT and talking about the many, many things that we do when we don't appear to be exercising that may burn calories. So uh, you can't see it on camera, but my feet are constantly tapping under my desk. I'm a fidgeter constantly and I pace all the time. So if let's just, let's just use me then as an example uh, or my wife who knits in front of the TV, how do we, how do we, uh, objectively or subjectively measure activity in those, you know, and I also rock a lot. So like if you were to sort of assess these things, Justin, since, since Janelle answered the last one, what, what, what say you? Well, yeah, there is a lot of research about meat. Um, and actually there's also a lot of research in the sensory behavior area into different types of sensory behaviors. 
So for example, looking at, you know, in terms of the, I believe it's called metabolic equivalent of task units. So these, um, this way of talking about how much energy are expended, expending relative to, you know, lying completely still in bed. Um, and actually, if you look at different things like video gaming or versus knitting versus other activities, actually something like video gaming is quite, has a relatively high MET value, which you would have never really expected, perhaps because your brain's very active and you're probably clenching your controller in rage while you're playing your video game, you know, something like that. Um, whereas perhaps eating or, you know, lounging back on and watching the TV is relatively more passive and you're not engaging much there and have a relatively low energy expenditure. And I think, yeah, there's also tying into that neat concept is sort of this, you know, notion of energy balance. And that actually when you tend to, you know, be in a period where you're eating more food, your body perhaps upregulates that neat and makes you more of a, of a fidgeter. So maybe, maybe you're overeating, Christopher, maybe that's what it is, making you fidget all the time. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's definitely happening. <laughs> so I'm also hearing, Chris, that we need, I need to bring my, my metabolic unit down to Alabama so we can measure your son's metabolic rates while they're video gaming. <laughs> Yeah, because there's a lot of jumping up and down and F-bombing. I don't know if that works out. <laughs> F-bombing is very calorically demanding, clearly. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm somebody who looks at physical activity. And, and, and so there's a lot here to that I, that I grasp onto. But one thing I want, especially folks who are perhaps looking into measuring sedentary behavior or physical activity, is kind of the question of why should we focus on sedentary behavior and not physical activity. Like they go together, but when you do a measure of sedentary behavior, why not just measure physical activity and say the association is low physical activity is associated with diabetes, da 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 da, da rather than a high sedentary behavior is associated with diabetes. I know they're, you know, two different sides of the same coin, but you're coming at it from different ways. So if one of you wouldn't mind kind of explaining why come at it from the sedentary side rather than the physical activity side. I'm happy to to at least start an answer to that. Um, so it's really interesting. I think the kind of importance or relevance of sedentary time um, came from just a shift in the field. So for a long time, it was just about physical activity and, and the impacts of that on health. And then there were a couple of studies in the early 2000s, and I think a lot of it was on the back of the research on NEAT that had been coming out, you know, showing that um, light kinds of movement and things are helpful and beneficial. Um, showing that sedentary behavior, and this was usually measures of TV, were de detrimental to health, um, even when physical activity was accounted for. So I think a lot of interest and resources went into looking at sedentary time because it was talked about as, you know, potentially novel risk factor for health. And I think since then, um, especially in like the last five years or so, we've kind of stepped back and realized you can't look at these things in isolation of each other, really. Um, and part of that is conceptually more or less time doing one thing corresponds to more or less time doing something else. So if the day is like a pie, the only way that you could sit less, for example, is to either move more or sleep more. So it doesn't make sense to just take sedentary time out of the context of the day and look at its impacts on health. So I very much think that it's all important. Um, so measuring physical activity and sedentary time and sleep and looking at their collective effects on health, which from a measurement perspective, it's challenging from a statistical perspective because these things are perfectly um, collinear with each other. Um, so there's that aspect of it. The other aspect is just that 
especially for some populations, the distinction between sedentary time and physical activity might be really small. Um, so I'm thinking of older populations, which Justin can talk you know, more about, but where you don't necessarily have high activity. Um, so not sitting or not sitting as much could be an actual you know, big meaningful thing, um, gently moving around or something where if you don't have a high enough resolution of measurement, it would all just look flat or all look like sitting when it could be very distinctive um, movement patterns throughout the day. Do you have anything to add, Justin? Yeah, I think it's uh, the interest in sedentary behavior, at least for my project, is very much um, looking at what can some of the older people we were studying um, actually engage with in order to improve their health. So in my project, for example, we were working with older people who were scheduled for hip and knee replacement surgeries. So they had severe osteoarthritis. And actually a concern was that, um, you know, not only is physical activity intimidating to some of these people, perhaps, um, but also, you know, the, the range of activities they can do is quite limited. So one way of approaching it was to think about displacing some, some of that sitting time into other activities, even if it's standing or um, just some light walking, for example, because actually, you know, the level of intensity that people can achieve is quite variable. And for some of these older people, even very little movement can be quite intense. Um, and so that was sort of the rationale behind that project. Um, but I think also like Janelle was saying, so this shift towards considering whole 24 hour periods um, and what is it actually that people do within these entire 24 hour periods um, which is often comprised of, you know, sleeping, lying down, sitting, standing, walking, perhaps some of us exercise, um, not enough probably on the, on the general scope of things. Um, so it's about, yeah, trying to understand, I think these days, less and less in terms of physical activity and ex versus exercise, but more about what is the accumulation like. Um, and even within the sedentary behavior field, there's been a lot of people looking at, you know, trying to create indices of sedentary behavior and not only how much of it is there, but how is it accumulated? What are the lengths of sedentary bouts? Um, what are the breaks within those bouts? And is there some kind of, you know, way we can, or index we can come up with to sort of bring all that together and say, you know, this person's sedentary profile is like this, for example. Um, so I think it's good that, that the uh, field is moving in that direction. So, so this is really interesting, and especially you've got my mind thinking about, and, and, and this came, comes out of the meetings and talking to uh, Doug Cruz, who studies senescence. You got me thinking about aging populations, some of the other research that I'm doing. And so what you're suggesting and what you're, you're, you're making me think about is where we often study sedentism in hunter-gatherer populations, as you, you mentioned in, in the article, is sort of like, we're looking to see how much we have changed since then. But really, when we're looking at these aging populations, the quality of their life is so dramatically affected by small changes in, in sedentism and movement because of an increasing, you know, increasing disabilities among aging populations. So that, that sounds a fantastic yeah. application for that. It's a vicious cycle as well. Like the more sedentary you become, the more of your function you lose and the more sedentary you have to be. So it's really about breaking that cycle. It's both a psychological cycle and a, and a physical cycle. So it's about how do we help people yeah. improve and that? Huge, yeah. huge, important area of research. So 
Um, your toolkit lays out the state of the art, but also what you can do with very limited resources. So for a lot of our listeners are grad students, undergraduates, trying to develop projects. And, and CARE is a, 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 an energetics researcher, but I'm not. And sometimes some of my students want to do this type of work. So for those of us with no resources or limited resources for this type of work, what's your advice for getting as accurate a measurements as possible when you can't afford ex expensive equipment or software? I think... Um... It, to some extent depends on how large scale of a project you're talking about. Um, so if it's something on the smaller end, I think there's a lot of power in asking people about how they spend their time. So it's the past day recalls that we refer to in the paper where um, you ask about what people have done in the past 24 hours and you start at the beginning, like for example, waking up and kind of anchor it around meals and just what did you do then? What did you do then? And if you're able to do it in like an interview context, you can ask a lot of follow-up questions about, were you sitting down while you were watching TV or were you doing something else? And, and I'm thinking of, you know, industrialized populations when I'm saying this, but um, that has a really strong correlation with these objective measures that we talk about that are really expensive. Um, and you get loads of really great data on how people spend their time and what exactly um, they're doing. It is, however, labor intensive because it takes a lot of work to <laughs> discuss, you know, people's everyday lives in that level of depth. Um, there's also diaries, so that's a kind of shortcut of doing that, having people record what they do throughout the day. Um, so that's my suggestion. And that gives you, it can give you total sedentary time, physical activity, sleep. You can sum those things together. You can break them apart into their separate. Um, so yeah, that's my recommendation. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to disagree for the sake of creating unnecessary fake drama to enhance the podcast entertainment value. Um, <laughs> so, well, I'm not going to disagree. I, I think I agree with a lot of what Janelle is saying there, but perhaps, yeah, if you want to, you know, a less intensive way, um, a good way is to use a sort of domain-based questionnaire, which tends to ask about a lot of different behaviors that people engage with. Um, some of them are on a daily basis or weekly basis, depends on the questionnaire. Um, but you generally have to ensure that the questions they ask match with your population. So, for example, in my project, I used one called the most, which is the measure of older adult sedentary time, um, which asks various questions about what older people tend to get up to when they're sitting down or lying around the house. Um, things like reading, perhaps knitting. Yeah. Um, and those kinds of activities. But you do have to be careful because, uh, yeah, Janelle and I had a little discussion earlier um, thinking about this podcast. And, for example, that question that I was using, it didn't ask about eating which is actually, you know, something very obvious that a lot of people do for a large portion of their day. I don't know about you and you and everyone else, but at least I do. Um, that's for sure. So you've got to be careful that although these things are validated, they might not actually ask some very obvious questions. So I think that's also sort of one of the reasons why we wrote that paper is thinking about the, the sort of practical things that um, you might encounter when you're when you're doing this kind of research and actually re it's probably relatively in its infancy if these kinds of uh, things are still being let through, as it were. I would say eating is perhaps the most difficult part of powerlifting, honestly. <laughs> that, <laughs> like if you're, if you're trying to go for big lifts, really big things, I, I remember at one time having to force like chicken thighs down my throat because I had to meet yeah. my protein. It was miserable. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's an interesting part. And so saying like this is in its infancy, I kind of would like to, to ask you two to look forward and think about 
if you could magically instantly innovate the perfect way to measure sedentary behavior, what might that look like? What would it take either technologically or ethnographically? So thinking qualitatively and quantitatively, what would that perfect measure look like? Um, I could start, but I know Janelle also has her own, uh, her own ideas about this. Um, I think I was focusing very much on sort of the quantitative side. So I was thinking about what is the sort of ideal way, thinking about 24 hour movement patterns the full scope of what people do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I think that that's sort of what we need to be able to measure now. Um, ideally, you want to take into account someone's entire day and not just the time they spend uh, sedentary so you can really get a full picture for, you know, you can't really control for physical activity unless you measure physical activity to some degree. So you can't really say that sedentary behavior is causing something unless you also have an idea for the rest of what someone is doing throughout their daily lives. Um, and so I think sort of a good technology that doesn't quite exist yet, people have um, started investigating it, I think, and we've outlined that a bit in our paper with these multi-sensor solutions, um, perhaps, you know, a device that incorporates heart rate measurement, but also can tell what posture you're in, which is very important for sedentary behavior, um, when you're sitting or lying down, um, but then also captures sort of the intensity of the um, of the activities you're engaging in. Um, that's something that, for example, when you use an active PAL, which is a type of um, Excel inclinometer that we outline in the paper, it is good at sensing posture, but it's not very good at sensing the intensity of the activity you're engaging in when you're not sedentary. Um, so it doesn't tell you too much about that. Um, so you get a good sense of sedentary time, but Often those studies also then have to supplement it with a different type of device to be able to measure physical activity as well. And so really you want a device that can say the intensity of activities that people are in as well as their posture and as well as identify sleeping accurately. And there's another thing to consider, which is also that sort of every individual is different. One device might count sedentary time by sort of these counts per minute, um, which is about, you know, how how much is someone moving? And so for one person, um, their walking might be very slow, very deliberate. They might be an older person. And so the device might misclassify that as sedentary time because it isn't able to detect that they're walking. And so perhaps some sort of device that combines heart rate monitoring with postural identification um, and uses some kind of newfangled machine learning not that I'm an expert in this area, but to sort of personalize it and calibrate it for an individual. Um, this kind of hypothetical device that also has a battery life of, you know, a month, <laughs> just, to, just to add some more variables into the equation and is, you know, not that noticeable to a person. You are setting the bar high with that month-long yeah. battery life. I'm looking to the future. You, you gave me a, you gave me a slate here. You gave That's me a phone. full repertoire. <laughs> so, Yeah. <laughs> But I, I think Janelle has another angle on, you know, not only is it important how much someone is doing, but it's also important of what they're doing. So Janelle. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't disagree with um, any of the suggestions that you've just, but I think for me, it's something that does exist, but um, it's an absolute pain, which is um, wearable cameras. So these are the next best thing from direct observation, the next best thing from just following someone around in their everyday life and writing down what they're doing every second of every day. Um, Swearable cameras are usually worn on a lanyard around the neck and you see 
basically what the person sees and you can tell to some extent what they're doing as they walk around in their lives with these cameras on. Um, so I guess what I would wish for that doesn't exist is one, a, <laughs> a way for that not to have ethical implications because of course it does. Um, there's loads written about this in terms of how you actually manage this in the field. Um, so obviously that's very wishful thinking. That's always going to be an issue. Um, but the other is just an easier way to process those data because what you get from wearable cameras is just reams of photographs that have to be categorized into, or you know coded based on what um, the person is likely to be doing. And that's incredibly time and labor intensive. Um, so if there's a way to take the technology that we have and make it less um, to use, that would be, that'd be great because that gives, I think, all of the information that you could possibly want about activity and sleep and what people are doing and how much time they're doing it and, and all of that. I'm sure it's also a behavioral issue too. I feel like I would totally change the things I do if I knew you were watching via a camera. Absolutely. I know that mm -hmm. sounds so sketchy, but like that then becomes like, well, then maybe I shouldn't eat that bag of chips because <laughs> it's going to show up on the camera. Sounds like a great idea for a camera that you don't know is recording your life. Oh my god. No gosh, ethical the issues IRP? there whatsoever. Oh my god. I was, I was thinking about the sedentary behavior of the bathroom. Yeah. There's a lot of things that you don't want to be taking photos of 24-7. Yeah. Quagmire for sure. Yeah. So it sounds like you 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 both I mean the tech and, and the way you're describing this, this is a very far off, right? So you, you, if any if any tech companies are listening, you may want to send a job offer yeah. to these folks. So what's <laughs> speaking of which, so so Janelle, you mentioned you sort of moved away, and it sounds like Justin, you're in the middle of a funded project. So so um, and and also you have a, a team of colleagues, and I'm gu I'm guessing are you guys part of the sedentary behavior research network that's mentioned in the paper? Yes. Yeah. So so I, I wonder if you could just quickly tell us what that is. That's a <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> um, it's a network of which I'm a, a part. I'm not in a particularly active way. So it's just um, a network of colleagues who work on sedentary behavior stuff all over the world. Um, it was that network that decided before I got into this research back in 2012, what the definition of sedentary behavior should be. Um, cause mm. it was, um, the kind of thing where people would refer to physical inactivity. So lack of physical activity and sedentary time, which is just sitting interchangeably. The network had a letter to the editor that said, right, sedentary time is defined by seated or reclined posture during waking hours, low energy expenditure, et cetera. Um, so I think the network very much kind of serves as a, a guiding body for kind of how this research is, is done, um, mm -hmm. but I should be more engaged with it. Yeah, I think there's sort of a core group of a few authors who really founded that group and they maintain it. And like Janelle said, sort of release those papers that help, help sort of found the initial principles and definition for it. Um, and I think as people get involved with sedentary behavior research, they become aware of the network and then you know, you can sort of sign yourself up to it. It's not very much that you need to do to really be part of it. So in that sense, so we are part of it, but um, I don't think we've been too much in contact with the, the founding members as it were. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, as we come to a close with this podcast, we kind of, we're going to combine the two final questions here. If you could briefly tell us two things, one, what's next for you? Uh, what big research thing you're doing? And then two, what kind of completes you as a human other than powerlifting for Justin, which we've heard, what are the fun things that you do uh, outside of your work? 
Um, I guess I'll start because I'm already talking. So, um, yeah, at the moment, I'm, I've, I've gone in also a bit of a different direction. So continuing with the behavioral psychology, um, I just finished a project looking at inter-organizational collaborations in healthcare. So that's a bit more on the organizational psychology side. How do people collaborate, um, especially in the healthcare context, to try and sort of build um, performance of healthcare organizations? And now I'm working um, on, a, on another project looking at unprofessional behaviors in healthcare. So that's the issue of how healthcare staff can behave unprofessionally towards each other and the impact that that might have on patient safety and the quality of care that those patients um, receive. And so we're trying to figure out um, using a realist review technique, which you may or may not have heard of, um, to, to try and figure out how the strategies to reduce that might work and how how such behaviors are caused in the first place. So I'm sort of going off on a bit of a, a tangent, but I think it's um, sort of all underpinned by this sense of behavior change and helping people live healthier lives to some and, extent. And the fun part of your life outside of, of this? Um, so yeah, other than the powerlifting that I mentioned, of course, the eating, uh, very important as well. Um, I like to play video games, which I also mentioned, <laughs> but sort of, uh, you know, in a different context. So awesome. perhaps I'm expending energy in all kinds of ways. I'm now waiting yeah. for the new like powerlifting VR game or something. That would be fun because I could do that without hurting myself anymore. <laughs> you got know, a lot of injuries. Um, back. I have a literal broken back. Uh, and so I'm not allowed to powerlift. Ever did again. that happen in the in the sport, or did it, it happen did happen outside? In the sport, but six years ago, and only just got diagnosed. So deadlift or bench squat. press? Bench press bench broke press. your back. It was before yeah. I had good form. Oh. I yeah, overarched when things were stuck and pop. She, she got up to about a five hundred pound deadlift with a twenty four hundred pound with the twenty foot walk. We're talking. We're talking about the yoke walk. I did a on yoke your walk, oh, yoke walk. but still on with a broken back. What I dabbled with strongman stuff too, because the equipment was available. So why the fuck not? Uh, anyway, <laughs> Janelle, tell us about what you're moving into next and what sorts of fun things you do. Um, what's next? I don't know. Um, so I've, with my postdoc currently, I've gotten really into statistical stuff. Um, I've got a lot of good training with that. And I've realized during the course of that, that um, there just aren't enough statisticians in the world and people with good statistical training. So I want to take what I've learned in this postdoc to do something with it, what that is, where that is, I have, I have no idea, but um, I'll keep you posted on what comes up next. Everybody um, needs to know a statistician and have a BFF in their life. Yes, so. I want to be everyone's BFF. If you need a BFF, come to me. <laughs> you can totally be my stats BFF. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, in terms of fun, uh, not stats. <laughs> um, no, I enjoy distance running, actually. Um, I did have a, a CrossFit obsession a while ago, so I can kind of sympathize really. with the powerlifting, but <laughs> I've moved on uh, from that. Um, I really enjoy um, just being outside and things like that. Um, but I just moved to London last year, so there's never-ending things to explore and discover in London. So that's been my major pastime lately. Awesome. That's great. So thank you both Janelle and Justin for taking the time today with many hours of time difference uh, between the two of us. 
we really appreciate not only your time, but also this toolkit. I think it's a fantastic piece that's going to be really helpful for folks trying to get into measuring sedentary behavior and how to best go about that. So thank you both again for being on the show. And we'll have to have you back on again as we uh, want stats buddies and hear about inappropriate behavior in a health setting. <laughs> <laughs>